0: Hey, you guys, this episode of Other People is brought to you by the Litbreaker Ad Network. Litbreaker helps book publishers, authors, and premium brands reach an engaged audience of authors, artists, editors, agents, producers, bloggers, media professionals, and readers. Lots of readers. Litbreaker ads appear on The Rumpus, Large Hearted Boy, HTML Giant, Full Stop, The Nervous Breakdown, Plowshares, and other high quality magazines and blogs featuring literary, arts-oriented, and pop-culture content and above-the-fold advertising. Visit LitBreaker.com for more information about advertising packages. LitBreaker is also accepting new partner sites in literary, general interest, mystery, creative writing, young adult romance, and other book genres. That's the LitBreaker Ad Network, an ad network for the literary, arts, and culture web. Be sure to visit LitBreaker.com for more information. It's an ad network for smart, interesting, readerly people. Go and advertise on it. Oh, my God.
1: You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common.
0: Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done.
1: I think it's really beautiful. Jesus, what struggle, you know? It was incredible. It was like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listy.
0: Just one person at just one time. Right. Okay, everybody, here we go again. This is it. This is other people. This is about getting the words in the right order. This is a subtle transfer of human energy. Thank you for listening. It's nice to be with you. My name is Brad Listy. I'm in Los Angeles. And uh, I have just dropped suddenly into a defensive crouch. That was a bad, I don't know. That didn't work. That's actually not true, but I thought it might be funny to say that. I actually prepared that. And whenever I prepare something, it doesn't work. It's got to be spontaneous. It's been sort of a weird day. I had to go to the dentist this morning to get some cavities filled. That's how my day started. I had cavities for the first time in like more than 15 years. I had multiple cavities. And it really bummed me out because uh, I'm someone who takes very good care of his teeth. I brush my teeth uh, two, maybe three times a day, and uh, I floss every single day. And by the way, if you do not floss, you are disgusting. (laughs) Really, though, it's one of those things where once you start to do it with regularity, uh, you will then realize how awful you feel when you don't do it. You will realize how utterly unkempt your mouth feels without flossing. You have to floss. Just trust me on this. This one thing. It's not a conspiracy. Okay? It's not a lie. Your dentist is not lying to you. <laughs> There's shit between your teeth. You have some pride. Take care of yourself. It's, it's like a 90-second a addition to your daily ritual. So, anyhow, I go to the dentist and I get these cavities filled. And you know what? I don't mind the dentist. I'm not scared of the dentist. I can lie uh, in that chair all day long if you need me to. And uh, to tell you the truth, I actually almost fell asleep today while this woman was drilling a hole in my tooth. I'm not even kidding you. I'm I'm unfazed by that sort of thing. So I get these cavities filled, and then uh, afterwards uh, I settle up. I had to pay $500, which pisses me off. And I have insurance. But uh, I I guess when you actually have to use the dentist for something besides, like, a cleaning, you know, I could go on. But uh, I leave the dentist, and I go to get a smoothie, thinking that this would be a, a wise choice that it would be gentle on my mouth. And, uh, I tell the girl behind the counter that I have just come from the dentist and I got some cavities filled because that's the kind of person I am. I I will just randomly (laughs) tell the person behind the counter at the smoothie shop that I just got some cavities filled. And, uh, you know, that's not probably, that's probably not a big surprise to you. That's sort of, um, you know, confessional thing. That's how I am with people. I'll tell you what I just did. So I'm talking to this young woman and I'm a little exasperated and I'm telling her, you know, I've only had like one cavity before this in my entire life. And now I just got four cavities filled at once or, you know, in consecutive order in one sitting. And uh, it left me feeling demoralized. So I say this, and this girl who, you know, is working in a smoothie shop in Los Angeles and is very health conscious, she tells me that uh, cavities are actually contagious. She says this with authority, and I'd never heard this before. Um, She tells me that you can actually get cavities from kissing someone or sharing food with someone who has cavities. Uh, And as it turns out, My wife has cavities that she needs to get filled and she has been putting it off forever. (laughs) She hates medical stuff. Avoids it uh, like the plague, even preventative care. So I hear this and uh, I get my smoothie, I pay, I get in my car, I drive home, I walk in the door, I immediately Google, are cavities contagious? And sure enough, uh, it is true. And so, uh, you know, I, I, I rise uh, from my chair nearly shaking and I walk back into the bedroom and my wife is there and I'm like, you did this to me. <laughs> you gave me, you gave me cavities. You gave me tooth decay. You can give someone cavities just by kissing them. That seems awful. And, uh, you know, this is it. For those of you who might be wondering, single people, unmarried people, this is it. This is marriage. This is what it is. Uh, You meet, you fall in love, you get married, uh, you give one another tooth decay. My mouth is now in a state of rapid decline through no fault of my own. I'm convinced of it. And uh, you know what? It's not the decay that bothers me. I thought about this a lot today, clearly. It's not decay. It's not death. It's not that I'm afraid of getting older. It's nothing like that. It's that I take such good care of my teeth. I don't deserve this. <laughs> I don't deserve it. So anyway, that's my day. That's my morning. My early morning. And then I, I uh, I got to my desk and I was feeling sort of ornery and I went online And, uh, started dicking around on the internet. And I read this article about wheat and how wheat is killing everyone. And wheat is the root of all evil. And I just, I got outraged because you guys know, for those of you who, you know, have listened to this show for a long time, you know, how susceptible I am to this sort of thing, any kind of health related trend or uh, scare, I'm going to fall for it. And, uh, this wheat thing, it put me over the edge and I found myself tweeting about it incessantly from the other people Twitter account, which I think uh, some of you saw this at, uh, at other people pod. I went off on wheat. <laughs> it's just, it can't be true. Like weed is not going to kill people. Okay. It's a fucking plant that we uh, as a species have been consuming for hundreds, if not thousands of years. Thousands of years, right? Enough already with the wheat. And yeah, sure, don't overdo it, okay? Don't uh, eat a loaf of bread every day. Don't eat only wheat. And don't eat high fructose corn syrup. <laughs> you know, eat mostly fruits and vegetables and uh, legumes and uh, nuts nuts. And then have some wheat on the side and floss your teeth, okay? Hey, everybody. If you are a writer or an aspiring writer or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, My guest today is Carolina Vaclaviak. And uh, yes, I did pronounce that correctly. I believe I did. Or at least I came close. Carolina uh, has a debut novel out from $2 Radio. It is called How to Get Into the Twin Palms. I'm very excited that she agreed to talk with me. Uh, we had a conversation. I recorded it. And I'm going to share it with you right now. What do you think about that? This is Carolina Vaclaviak And her new novel, once again is called How to Get Into the Twin Palms.
1: I'm in Brooklyn, New York right now staring at a wall of nails coming out of the wall because I'm taking down paintings and other stuff because we're moving. Oh, you are? Yeah.
0: Is this a good, like good move? You're, like you're moving into a better place? or
1: We're moving to Los Angeles, so I would say it's a better place.
0: Okay. Okay. I was going to ask, because I'm in, do you know that I'm in Los Angeles?
1: No, I didn't know that.
0: Yes. I'm sitting, I'm sitting. Now we
1: have to be friends.
0: Yeah. I mean, I'm right here in Los Angeles and, uh, I'm probably not far from, uh, your old hood because you used to live here, right?
1: Yep. For 10 years.
0: Okay. And you missed it. You wanted to get back out here.
1: Yeah. I moved here, uh, to go to grad school and, even left all of my furniture in L.A. with a plan to be back on graduation day uh, and met my husband, and it's taken me three years to convince him that it's time to go back, but we're doing it finally.
0: See, my wife and I, I was talking to her just uh, what was Saturday night, and I was saying to her how much I love Los Angeles. And, you know, wherever I live, or I think wherever most people live, you go through, you know, different moods with regard to, you know, that that place and how much you like it. But overall, I love Los Angeles. I think it's the best city in the world. I don't care what anyone says.
1: I I totally agree. And when I moved there, I was 18. My parents put me on an airplane and said, see you later. And I had to figure out how to get from LAX to where I was going. And so I definitely hated it when I first moved there. because I was like, no car, had no idea about the city. But I remember one day I woke up, In this high rise, I was sleeping at my friend's house, and there was not a cloud in the sky and no smog, and I could see the mountains, and I was like, okay, this place is amazing. I think I found, it's that moment you fall in love.
0: Okay, so, uh, but, and you were saying uh, a moment ago that your parents just put you on a plane to Los Angeles when you were 18 and said, see you later. Like, that sounds kind of harsh. Like, what happened? (laughs)
1: Well, they're immigrants. We all are. (laughs) So it was kind of like I got into USC for screenwriting, and I didn't really get in anywhere else, which is hilarious. Uh, I wasn't a really good student, and my sister went to Cornell, and they were assuming I would also go to some great school, but I was a terrible student. So all the schools I applied to, like Yale and Harvard, were like, you're out of your mind. And so I think I really only got into USC for screenwriting and then maybe two other schools, like my safeties. So my parents were like, oh, I guess you're going here. And I had no interest in going to LA, but they literally put me on a plane. So I get to LA and had to find USC and I was so pissed because everybody's parents were like hanging their posters up for them and stuff. And I was just like alone at school in a place I didn't want to be. But, uh, you know, obviously screenwriting was amazing and I wanted to do that. It was just like, I'm 18 and don't know anyone in the city.
0: (laughs) Yeah, No, I mean, like I, it's a hard city, you know, I feel like Los Angeles is a hard city to visit but like maybe a better city to live in once you can kind of get settled and figure out your, your thing because, uh, and I feel like it's the reverse for, for me in New York. Like I love to visit New York, but like I cannot access like how you would live there unless you were like super, super rich. And, uh, yeah, I don't know. It seems like increasingly that way. Not, not that LA is easy, but it just seems a little bit easier somehow.
1: It definitely does. I mean, I feel like even just taking the subway every day is just, demoralizing. So, the people who can take cabs cuz I'm definitely not one of them are living a life or something, but <laughs> I'm not living. <laughs> I'd rather be in my pod of a car stuck in traffic on the 405 than on the L train during a rush hour when there's signal problems, that's for sure.
0: Yeah, and like the summer, I just think of the trains in the summer and like all the bodies and that that's when I start to get sketched out. Like in the winter, at least it's cold. Some of the smells are muted. <laughs> like the subway in the summer, like going down into those stations, it's just like, oh my God, you know.
1: Yeah. Or, you know, it's like ten o'clock and you start seeing guys just like whipping it out and peeing in the subway station while you're waiting for the train and you're like, This is normal. This is this is what normal is here.
0: Wait, so like at late at night guys will just pee right there on the platform or are they actually peeing onto the tracks?
1: They're peeing like near the seating area to kind of hide it a little bit.
0: Oh, my. And this is common. You've seen this many times.
1: Many times.
0: Oh, my. I didn't realize that. And What was I just reading, though, about the subway in New York? Oh, no, I was just doing all these tweets. Um, I, I do, like, this curatorial retweeting on my Brad Listy account where I just, like, pick a theme. <laughs> I pick a theme, essentially, and then I just, like, do searches and I just, like, retweet the funny or the weird tweets that I find. And Uh I I did, uh, like one about subways, like people like tweeting from subways and subway stations. And, um, there's some horrendous things and some really (laughs) funny things, but you know, I I just had this go through my mind. So, uh, Uh, anyhow, so your parents put you on a plane to Los Angeles. Where are you from? Uh, where did you grow up? I know you, you know, your parents come from Poland and you emigrated when you were like a very small child, but where did you, where were you raised?
1: I was raised in Connecticut, actually, so, like, small, small small-town Connecticut in a place called Madison. Um, Nothing really going on. And uh, I was just, I don't know, it was, like, suburban life, but it was kind of a wealthy town, and there were kids who weren't. And, uh, you know, that was me and my misfit friends, so we just kind of ran around. Um, but my parents were super strict because they just wanted us to study all the time. So it's funny, I couldn't go places like sit in front of a the movie theater with people because that was like, you're asking for trouble. But when I asked if I could take writing classes at Columbia when I was 16, they were like, yes, we'll t- we're taking you to the train station and be home by 11. So... You know, every Saturday I woke up at 7 in the morning and got on the train and went to New York and had free range until, you know, I caught the 11 o'clock train and they picked me up at the train station, which everybody's parents were like, how are you allowed to do that? But then I wasn't allowed to go downtown, you know, to the movie theater.
0: So did you do anything? I mean, on these trips, you actually just went to these classes and then what did you do? I mean, were you getting into any kind of trouble?
1: I was... Always alone because I was a total loner and I had a camera. So I would take the subways around and then wander around and get lost pretty much. So I would, I, you know, I found myself in the Bowery in like 96 and 95 just wandering around and being like, I just need to figure out how to get back to Grand Central at some point in my life.
0: <laughs> was the Bowery bad back then? I mean, was it?
1: It was. It was bad you know, I also feel like I got lucky because I got to go to CBGB's as a teenager before, you know, it closed down. So I will always have that kind of memory, even though it was, like, for a hardcore show.
0: Yeah, but, like, what is it? CBGB's is, like, a, a some sort of, like, fashion store now, isn't it?
1: Yeah, it's a John Barbados store, I think, or something of that caliber. And then there's, like... <sighs> Sad places around it, like fashiony kind of shops. It's just I've been walking around New York, and you know I was so enamored of it when I was a teenager, and I would sit in like Astor Place and take photos of skateboarders. And instead of like a gigantic bank that's there now, it's just like empty parking lots and like kids just skating around. And I just wander around now, and I'm like. The only people who can afford to live here have to be wealthy, and the only, like, shops that can be here are banks. Like, it's just so sad to me. Every corner, there's, like, a Bank of America or a City Bank now because all the mom and pop shops are just gone.
0: Oh, my God. What Like, what's, what's going to happen? Like, it just feels like I've heard people say this because I talk to, obviously, a lot of writers from – New York and Brooklyn and, like, this kind of, like, conversation happens on this show a lot and then I've had, you know, individual conversations with friends along the same lines and it's like, where where does it all end? Like, how can that – that can't sustain itself or or can it? Is it just over? Like, there's never going to be a time or are we just just cycling through some sort of, like, perverted, gilded age that's eventually going to recede and then the artists will move back in or are they –
1: I'm trying to start a commune, so everyone can come with me. (laughs) I don't don't know what's going to happen in New York. I feel like it's just going to be... You know, my friends have been trying to buy apartments here, and it's like um, 18-year-olds with their parents who are coming to buy an apartment for their kids as an investment. I mean, it's just not... People who even can possibly buy an apartment can't because, like parents of kids are buying these places or, you know, people from other parts of the world who just want a place to stay when they're coming to vacation here for three weeks out of the year, have to buy apartments. It's just nuts.
0: That is nuts. It's crazy. So, um, growing up in Connecticut and, you know, I, like how, uh, acutely did you, I mean, did you feel, cause you were so young, you were, you were what, two years old when your parents immigrated?
1: Yeah, we were two, we actually immigrated uh, through New York City during a garbage strike, which was like, my parents wanted to get back on the plane, and go back to Poland, but they they sent us to Texas first for like five years, I want to say, um, and a church sponsored us. They thought they were getting a Filipino family, so they were like totally surprised when we <laughs> showed up, but um, <laughs> we lived there. And then came to Connecticut. So that period of time was like pretty short, but also I would say the best time of my life as a kid.
0: What? The the Texas? The Texas? Yeah. Okay.
1: Yeah, I ran rampant. I had a bicycle and a gang of kids. It was like an Air Force neighborhood. So our parents were always working. And we just rode our bikes around and like hung out in sewers and stuff like that. It was Idyllic, like I would
0: say. <laughs> Nothing better than childhood sewer games.
1: Yeah,
0: <laughs> Uh Okay. through pipes and stuff. So, uh, and forgive me for not knowing like the the nuances of this, but like, uh, like why did you immigrate? How did you immigrate? Like, how does that happen? Like, do you, did you get like some lottery, or did you?
1: No, we escaped.
0: You escaped. Um, okay.
1: Yeah. So my parents were students. Uh, graduate students, they're both electrical engineers, but they were kind of like... Especially my dad, I would say, were agitators uh, against communism and what was going on. They were really unhappy about what was going on politically in Poland. Um, And my father got pulled in by the police for questioning and stuff. So all their friends kind of came to the conclusion they needed to get out of Poland. It was before martial law happened in 81. So um, they kind of hatched a plan that they would escape over the border and go to Austria because they had heard if you go into any police station in Vienna, you could say you're looking for political asylum and they'd have to take you. So that's what we did. We uh, basically sewed all of our important papers in suitcases, in the lining of suitcases, and said goodbye to my grandparents. And grandparents were allowed to know, and I want to say my their siblings were allowed to know, but nobody else could, because you didn't know if someone was going to turn you in. So. We went across the border and in the Czech Republic, some cops stopped us and, uh, wanted us to go to, uh, wanted us to turn around. And my mom just like lost it and started screaming and they were so freaked out by her that they let us go. But we were, after we asked for political asylum, we were in a refugee camp, I would say for like six months, um... And then we were supposed to go to Australia, but my dad had sent a letter to the man who was going to sponsor us and didn't put the right amount of postage on the letter. So he assumed the man had changed his mind, but it took him like eight months to get this letter. And by the time he got it, we had left the refugee camp and actually to
0: America. So this is so crazy. Like I'm thinking of like these twists of fate and like what has determined the course of like your life and the life of your family. Um, you know, if your mother doesn't have that freak out for that cop in whatever way she freaked out, everything could be different. You could be in Poland. Yeah. You could be in Poland right now doing God knows what. If your dad had put the proper postage on that envelope, you could be in like, you know, Sydney right now, you know, like it's, yeah, they seem like very kind of like small, uh, almost arbitrary things. Uh, and yet the impact is like enormous.
1: It's true. It's funny. Cause my dad's older brother tried to emigrate with his family first, I believe, or right after us. And One insignificant um, mistake at the border had them sent back, and they were put on a list. So they tried again a few months later, like literally days before martial law, and they actually made it through. But if they hadn't made it through that second time, you know, the borders didn't open up again until 91, which was like the second flood of Polish immigrants that left Poland.
0: So where did they go? Like where did they they – your your uncle, like where did he wind up?
1: We sponsored him. He came to Texas too.
0: Oh, he did, okay. So, well that's good. Because yeah. I was thinking about that goodbye. Like you say goodbye to your grandparents. That means your parents were saying goodbye to their parents. Were they thinking like we're never gonna see these people again? Like that's gotta be a very heavy goodbye.
1: Yeah. I mean they honestly didn't know when they would ever see them again. Ugh. Because you didn't you kinda didn't know how long this communism thing was gonna happen. You know, you didn't know if solidarity was ever going to happen. It was just, we need to leave, um, and, you know, we are doing this for our family, and we love you, but we have to do this. And it was really traumatic. It was really funny, though, because my, I asked my parents a few months ago, like, what made you decide you had to go? And they were like, it was you. <laughs> and I have an older sister, but... I was, like, really chubby, like, piggy little kid. I just wanted to eat all the time. And, um, (laughs) at that time, you had to get a ticket. And for any food you wanted, you had to get a ticket. So, you got a ticket for bread, you got a ticket for meat, or whatever. So, at the meat store, if your ticket said you could have chicken, you could only have chicken. You couldn't ask for, like, sausages or whatever. But, I was really obsessed with hot dogs, and apparently I, as a two-year-old, was crying for a hot dog, and they wouldn't – the store wouldn't give me a hot dog because we didn't have a ticket for
0: one. Well, I mean, like, and, and who hands out these – tickets? just like some arbitrary ticket distribution that told you what you could eat?
1: I mean, the government.
0: Oh, my God.
1: So my love of hot dogs is what was the breaking point for my family.
0: Yet another yet another, yet another twist, <laughs> honestly. <what> a, <laughs> holy cow. But you were so little, you remember none of this. Like you don't remember. Like, no. Yeah. You just like, you're, you, you, like your earliest memory is an American memory.
1: Yeah. My earliest memory is like, uh, you know, being bad in Texas.
0: Okay. And did you, and did the, did the grandparents ever get to come over? Was there ever like a a reunion or?
1: Yeah, they actually got on a boat. Um, It was really, they got on a boat to the Dominican Republic through the Dominican Republic up to America. Like it was this really bizarre trial that they had to take to come see us. Uh, And I think they stayed for, I don't know, three or four months. And once, uh, the borders open up again. We would bring them over. We went to them and stuff
0: like that. Okay. Well, that's good. That makes me happy. That seems like I, I would have been heartbroken if that was like that was it. You know.
1: Yeah. There, there is a heartbreaking story to this, but I, you know, maybe for another time.
0: Wait. There's a heartbreaking. <laughs> there's a heartbreaking story that happened in Poland or in America.
1: In Poland, we had a dog. Um, his name was Hedness. And he was an Irish setter, and he was, like, my parents' sidekick, even before um, my sister and I were born. And uh, he went looking for us after we left. And the, we had, like, a, my mom grew up in the village, so we spent summers in the village. But we lived in Łódź, Poland, which was a city, and Hedemes uh, ran to the village to go find us.
0: Oh, my God. Yeah.
1: uh, You know, Eastern European stories are always uplifting.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I was going (laughs) to say. But, I mean, what happened? He just ran to that village and couldn't find you, and then what?
1: He couldn't find us. He went crazy. He was running back and forth through Wooch, and, uh, you know, he had to be put down because he was just – he went crazy.
0: Oh, my God. You know, did you ever hear that story? There's actually, like – I want to say there's a statue – in this cemetery or in this town for like a border collie that, um, you know, it was like, we, I, I want to say it was a shepherd or a farmer or whatever, you know, a rancher who used this dog as a working dog and they had a very close bond. And then this uh, rancher uh, died and the dog was shipped off to like a village or a farm, like, you know, miles and miles away. And this dog escaped and ran all the way back to, um, this I like, like somehow found the cemetery, and the dog was found lying on the gravesite of its former uh, master. And there's I a,
1: did read that. I mean,
0: yeah. it's just like it's too much to believe, but it's a true story. And they have a statue of this dog, you know, like uh, in some town. I wish I could remember the specifics of it, but it sounds kind of similar. Except um, your poor dog just like went completely insane. <laughs> it's such an awful. Yeah, story. <laughs> I
1: mean, it's the thing my parents cry about. It's like the one thing that haunts them still. It's what? kinda crazy.
0: Well, you know, it's a tough I mean, you have to make a tough call. I think they made the right call, considering how bad things were there. I mean the
1: Yeah. Their
0: baby girl needed hot dogs for God's sakes. So you gotta make
1: <laughs> And I got plenty of them in America. That's right.
0: Land of hot <laughs> land of hot dogs. <laughs> oh my, you're like, This is what we came here for? Shit. <laughs> Okay, so how acutely? I I mean, I I alluded to this at when we first started talking about uh, Poland, but how acutely as a young, uh, you know, freshly American uh, girl, did you feel your Polishness? Like, did you were you like I'm an immigrant? Like, I'm this is it. I'm brand new here. Or did you just feel like I'm native? My parents are the ones who are immigrants, and do you know what I'm saying? Yeah, it's weird.
1: I mean, I definitely felt. Let's see. I, I kind of sometimes always say there's two kinds of immigrants, one that have one foot back in their home country. They'll visit a lot, like every year, speak Polish at home. And then there's the other kind of immigrant who's just like, we're here. This is is our country. We're embracing it and we're going to speak English at home as we're trying to learn it, et cetera. And my parents were very much of the, we're in America, we're Americans now. Um, They worked hard not to speak Polish at home, um, because they were learning the language as we were learning the language. And so, I mean, we ate Polish food, and when we were young, we hung out with Polish people, but I would say we were extremely Americanized. But it was weird because we didn't necessarily have the same cultural touchstones or some kind of large family here that felt really American, but we didn't have this really strong Polish community that we were a part of or could speak Polish very well. My sister, brother, and I um, couldn't speak Polish well enough to sort of pass as Polish.
0: Okay, so I was going to ask, do you speak fluent Polish now or no?
1: I mean broken, really broken. I can pro- I can order food, I can hold a conversation, but as someone once told me, I speak like a kindergartner. So, it's definitely not it's not good. And I my brother, who was actually born here, and my sister both took Polish classes in college, but I just didn't didn't feel that pull.
0: To speak it, well, I don't know. It, you know what's interesting too that you said is that it's funny how you would come to this country and you would, you know, um, you know, your parents took the approach of like fully embracing it and uh, not speaking the language in the house and really trying to kind of just embrace Americanness. But like the last thing to go is the food. You know, you're still like search, yeah. searching out and eating like food from the native country. And like, I guess my mind started going. I wondered like if I were to, if the situation were somehow reversed for me and I were to go immigrate somewhere. I guess it depends on the country. Like if I immigrated to like Italy or something, I think I'd just be like, "I'm going to eat Italian food." You know, like
1: yeah. I, I, don't,
0: I don't need to like find my Americanness, you know. But um, I don't know. Food is a big part of identity.
1: It really is, and I think it's kind of like you said. It seems to be like the last thing to go. And as much as my parents like, will only make pierogi on Christmas, but it's like a big event, you know. There's like four of us making the pierogi, and it's the time that we spend sitting around together, kind of thing. Um, you know, we might make some soups, but I mean, my parents are really, they've got accents, but they're super Americanized. It's interesting because I've asked them about, you know, what's the deal here, and um, they said it's a matter of survival. You know, they had to, they had to, kind of almost kill any nostalgia they had for Poland because it was so hard to immigrate here and they missed it so much and there was so much they left behind that they couldn't they couldn't feel that way about it because they wouldn't they would have gone home or, you know
0: Or they would have just driven themselves was, nuts. You know, you can't you can't dwell, you're here. Yeah. You have to just I can see that you have to com- yeah, you have to compartmentalize yeah. or whatever you know or let it go
1: right and then when we go visit i mean we feel they maybe not so much but i definitely feel like i'm a tourist um but it's funny cuz i live right near greenpoint and i look polish and people look at me and they're you see the recognition of like oh there's a polish girl but um if they try to speak to me in polish i will but I always feel like fraudulent, or like I'm pretending, or trying too hard, or they get that I'm like some loser who doesn't know Polish very well. And there's this feeling of like, do you think you're too good to speak Polish? And
0: it's almost, you're not Polish. It's almost worse to only like. It's almost worse to be mediocre in a language. I find it's like better. Right. It's better to just not speak it at all because like I, I was relieved to hear you say that you feel like a kindergartner because that's kind of the. The way that I talk about it, it's just like, I feel two dimensional speaking like Spanish or French or whatever, like both of which I'm like. I just have like a rudimentary ability and I, I can basically talk like a small child. So yeah. when you start to engage in conversation, you just wind up sounding like a jackass to these people who are fluent. You're just like,
1: yeah. Uh, and then it, you feel you have to be profusely apologizing and then you look like you have really low self-esteem or something.
0: It's a slippery slope into just like a pool of awkwardness. Yeah. So, okay. So, um, and, and also like one culinary question that, that comes to mind and, uh, I should probably know this. In fact, I should know this because my uh, little sister married, uh, a, a Slovakian and they eat pierogies and they have a pierogi fest near their house. Um, Ooh. yeah, outside of Chicago. So, um, can you explain to my audience what a pierogi is for those who might not know? It's,
1: it's like a ravioli, but it's. Filled, it's like a half-moon ravioli filled with – we always had it with sauerkraut and mushrooms. But you can have it with potato and cheese and rolled inside or meat, uh, like a chicken and beef mixture. But my favorite is the sauerkraut and mushroom.
0: Okay. I need to have some of these. I can't believe I've never had one. It seems insane to
1: They're me. so good. Yeah. My little you should go to Varshava. Where's that? It's uh, Santa Monica in Santa Monica.
0: Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, I'll check it out. And maybe when my little sister comes out with her husband, we can go on a pierogi adventure or something. You should make him make you pierogi. I should. I should. (laughs) Um, Okay. So Texas, the idyllic uh, sewer games of your youth uh, ended when you were what, like five years old, seven years old?
1: Yeah, I was seven. uh, And when my parents said we were moving, I ran away.
0: Okay, so first of all, why were you moving?
1: Um, because Texas was so much different than Poland. Um,
0: <laughs> you don't say.
1: <laughs> I would say culture shock happened.
0: <laughs> right, just this extended. So, but I mean, over, over five years, it must have just been like a slow motion, just like, what the... Like I, yeah. I feel like I would have culture shock moving to Texas, and I'm, you know, in California, so it's got to be...
1: Yeah. I loved it. I mean, so my dad went on a business trip to Boston and took my mom and they were like, oh my God, this weather's like Poland. So uh, they ended up... We ended up moving to Connecticut and that was just much more... It just felt more... The flowers were the same kind of deal, like same feeling of Poland, I guess. but, yeah, I was, like, traumatized that we were leaving because I had the run of the neighborhood, and um, I ran away on my bicycle, and they had to come find me. And then when well, how, I was at the...
0: How old were you? Like, fifth grade? Seven seven. Seven. Okay, seven. seven.
1: No, so I was, like, first grade. Yeah, I was first grade.
0: And already running away. That seems like an audacious yeah. move.
1: I was... <laughs> I was... I looked like a female dentist, a menace. So my parents were always like, she's definitely not the person doing all these terrible things. But I always was the person doing (laughs) a terrible thing. Um, (laughs) And we went to the San Antonio airport and I really was like, this is my last chance. This is my last chance to make this move not happen. So I tried to pull the fire alarm. Wow. Because uh, my logic was the planes wouldn't take off if there was a fire alarm set. So I literally had my hand up and heard, don't do that. And it was an uh, uh, officer in the airport.
0: Oh, man. Okay, I was going to say, because yeah. if it was just your parents, that wouldn't have mattered. But it was an actual officer of the law, which...
1: It was an officer of the law.
0: Okay. And so you didn't you got on the plane and the rest is history.
1: Yeah, after he told my parents cuz he was like you realize your parents could get arrested for that. So there were tears and my parents looking at me like what is the matter with you? You're the devil. Like we can't take you anywhere.
0: I'm now picturing you being transported to uh, Connecticut on the airplane like on a uh, dolly like Hannibal Lecter like Yes. Know, <laughs> you can't like you just can't you have to be completely restrained with like a face mask
1: <laughs> not far off okay
0: so uh and like is the, forgive me again for not knowing uh, my geography uh or did i not know my geography earlier just forgive me again generally um but like was this town that you lived in in connecticut was it uh suburban new york city or was it further out into the sticks
1: It was like middle of Connecticut on the water, so east of New Haven. New Haven was the closest city. It's like an hour and a half from New York City.
0: Okay. And what did your parents – your parents were engineers? Were they getting work as engineers up there?
1: Yeah, they were both electrical engineers.
0: That's a good skill to have. That seems like a specialized situation. So you guys were doing okay, like especially for people just arriving. Like it seems like – I mean, uh, am I correct? Did you guys make a pretty good transition, comparatively speaking?
1: Yeah, it was weird. My dad actually, like, wanted to just find work as an electrician because the idea was in America you were never going to get a job being, you know, who you were in your old country. But uh, they met this American guy who – uh, really helped us a lot and said, you're an engineer, you're going to get a job as an engineer. So my parents are both taking night classes for English. And then, um, my dad was like riding his bike to work and stuff. It was pretty gnarly. Um, but yeah, he was really lucky because he got a job as an engineer and then so did my mom.
0: Wow. So your parents are pretty brainy people because engineers are usually pretty smart folk.
1: Yeah, my dad's, like, the worst person to try to help you with your math homework because he's talking about, like, black holes and stuff. And you're like, <laughs> I, just need, I just need you to help me with algebra and then the crying.
0: Well, wait, yeah, and, like, your parents also, this seems kind of strange. Your parents are both, like, these math-brained electrical engineers, and then you and also your sister are, like, uh, screenwriting, movie-creative, writerly people. Is that right?
1: Yeah, and my brother, too. We're all doing the writing thing, so they are really excited
0: about that. Wait, okay, so all three children, you you obviously are a screenwriter and novelist, and then what do your sister and your yeah. brother do?
1: Um, my sister was doing VFX for blockbusters and stuff, but she also is a director and is a writer, and my brother uh, is younger, and he's like a poet and writing a novel, so...
0: Nothing, nothing a parent loves more than hearing that their child is going to be a poet, Right. Right, I, know. I think i'm gonna do this mom this you know
1: I'm at, I'm at ut i'm gonna transfer out of engineering into poetry and my parents were like
0: oh my god uh, is that what he did
1: yes
0: yeah. holy shit that's some nice parents and you know what i i say that i say that and like my parents were totally like that way they were like completely understanding of my uh my interests and they were very supportive, but like knowing what I know now, having been in it as a writer and trying to be creative, like it's such a hard life. Like I, if my daughter tells me she wants to study poetry, I'm going to have to like, I don't know what I'm going to do. Just have to be very quiet for a long time.
1: Right. Disparaging, (laughs) but not too disparaging.
0: Just just go into like a strange cold silence for like three years, (laughs) you know? Um, It's true. And
1: that's kind of what they always say to us. They're like, we just don't, know what you're doing it's just so hard and we wish you would have just been engineers we don't know why you're doing this to us and yourself (laughs) Uh,
0: well but you know you can't for I think I think it's also a mistake to try to shoehorn somebody into like a life and a line of work that they have no interest in I mean that's not going to work out well so
1: Yeah, that was my whole high school. Like my dad was like, You're gonna be in advanced geometry and I was like, I think that's a horrible idea and you know, D minuses later, I was right.
0: Yeah. So did you get good grades in like the English classes? Were you that kid or or was it just you were terrible across the
1: board? No, I was bad across the board. I had a D minus in creative writing, I was failing English. I just felt like I I didn't need to be there. And I think, you know, taking classes at a place like Columbia with an amazing teacher, Leslie Woodard, uh, who just passed away, she was having us read, like, Jesus' Son and um, Flannery O'Connor and stuff like that. So going to a high school class and reading whatever garbage shit we were reading, I was just like, you... I had this feeling
0: like this is not living. You were like, you were like, do you realize that I just spent last Saturday wandering the streets of New York city by myself, taking photographs of skateboarding boys and, you know, that seems, I got to say like that seems (laughs) reading
1: poetry. Yes. yes.
0: (laughs) I spent hours in Washington square park reading Sylvia Plath. I mean, uh, right. I feel like, though, like as a child who was raised in more, you know, kind of bucolic Midwestern cities, um, the idea of even having like solo access to New York City at that age, that must have been amazing. That's That's great. Yeah. I mean, you know, that's a very it was luck- amazing. That's lucky.
1: And I was just I, I literally spent because I was going there for two years every Saturday just getting lost. And it was like before cell phones, I had a subway map in my pocket, and no real street map and I was just it was just one long discovery. It was just amazing
0: well then were you doing any drugs or anything like were you that were you into that stuff, or
1: no, I had done drugs, and well i was I started smoking in the fifth grade.
0: Oh you, uh, oh, you did good. Yeah.
1: <laughs> I had two periods where I was like, I was really bad in middle school, like stealing liquor from my parents' cabinet when I was like in the fifth grade, and you know, girls coming over and I'd be like, "Do you want to put some vodka in our Kool Aid?" And then being like, "What are you talking about?"
0: <laughs> um, I feel like wait a minute. I feel like you might be a genius. Like when I was in fifth, <laughs> what was it? What was I doing in fifth grade? You were sophisticated. I didn't even know how to spell vodka when I was in fifth grade. <laughs> you were advanced. Like. I was just... <laughs> you were like too smart. Well, my for, parents were, had. You were, uh, wait, you were like too smart for high school. I mean, you know what I'm saying? Like, were, were you? Did you secretly get like a 1600 on your SATs? But yet you, you had terrible grades. Like, what was it?
1: No, no. I just wanted to like live life. I thought school was a total waste of time. I just wanted to be out there like living. Um. And I, it's my, you know, when we lived in Texas, my parents had wild parties uh, with their Polish friends. And I'm sure they'd be so embarrassed right now if I would, (laughs) that I'm talking about this. But they, they had like a group of Polish friends and they would just kind of like shuffle all the kids and we all hated each other into one room of a house and kind of lock the door and be like, we'll see you in a few hours. (laughs) And they were partying like crazy. So I would have schemes of like, I'm going to pour perfume on this light bulb so it explodes, so then it's dark, and we all start screaming, and they have to come get us, and then I can go party with them. (laughs) (laughs) Like
0: I remember that though, as a kid, like wanting to like, being like, you know what? I'm, I'm sick of these kids. I want to go hang with the adults. And like, they're yeah, this is clearly like a better option.
1: What's all this smoke. Yeah, exactly.
0: Exactly. (laughs) It's all this laughter. And what are these? Yeah. (laughs) So, and, and this is, I mean, this is kind of like an oddball question, but I think like thinking back to my youth, we're like roughly, I think in the same ballpark age wise, but Um, I remember growing up and there were like Polish jokes, you know, like, did you feel that? Was that something that bothered you? Did you, I mean, or was that not something you even had experience with in Connecticut?
1: Yeah, no, there definitely were. And then I would come home crying and my dad would be like, you tell them about Copernicus. And I'd be like, (laughs) that's not going to (laughs) work.
0: That's not the comeback I was looking for, dad.
1: (laughs) No, (laughs) Yeah, I mean, but again, I was like very, I was passing as an American. I even, you know, I went by the name Carolina, and I said I was born in Texas, because at that point, you're young, you don't want to cause, you know, call any attention to yourself. And I remember, you know, something I'm so embarrassed about now, it's like, I wouldn't want my mom to talk at school functions, because I'd be like, everyone's going to make fun of me that my mom has an accent, which is, like, so absurd, but I just didn't want to give anybody ammunition. Like, I was overly tall. I was weird. I didn't need to have, like, a foreign mom talking. It was just, like, uh, I... Everything was embarrassing to me, and I think that's why I much prefer to be, like, a loner on the streets of New York where no one cared who I was or where I was coming from, and I could be anybody.
0: I get that. And and you say, uh, like, you were over tall. Like, how tall were you?
1: I mean, I was, like, a big girl, I would say. For a long time, I was the tallest girl in my class. I'm only 5'8", but I was... I got I got tall as one of the first girls and definitely taller than the boys. So I just felt like a giant ogre all the time.
0: <laughs> I was like for like for a brief minute there when you were talking, I was picturing you at like six foot two or something, but
1: No, no. Okay. Just like Oafish. Oh I just was like oafish, oh boyish. My parents dressed me in boy clothes when I was a kid. Um, you know, cause we were getting like, uh, when we first moved to America, we had, um, uh, people giving us clothes for some reason. I looked like John Candy. That was like the way everyone thought I should look. <laughs> sounds,
0: I feel bad. I feel bad for you. <laughs> That's the point of all this. Yeah. Um, Okay, so to fast forward a little bit, like getting up to your departure from uh, home in Connecticut and your arrival in California to kind of circle back to that. Uh, once you got over the initial you know, shock of being suddenly in Los Angeles as an 18-year-old uh, or, or 17-year-old, however old you were, uh, did you find yourself like assimilating relatively quickly once school started or did it take you a, a longer time?
1: Yeah, you know, I was still, like, anti-school, but I knew I had to do it, and I was into the fact that that the screenwriting department was treating us like adults, like we were writing scripts right away, and they were treating us like, you know, this is a professional program where you're going to be writing a lot, and you're going to be making films, and you're going to be learning every aspect of filmmaking, so, you know, other programs you were in a room writing scripts, but we were actually... Having to go find actors, film, edit, do the music, you know, write the thing. So that was really an amazing experience for me, um, because I, I was the type of person who felt like I could do it all and I was interested in doing it all. But I think, like, the school aspect of it in USC when I got there, like, Everybody was wearing USC sweatshirts and flip-flops. And I was just like, dude, what is going on? <laughs> this is the worst place I've ever been to. <laughs> so I, I liked my classmates a lot, and I loved the filmmaking aspect, but I didn't do anything on campus. Um, I actually started getting involved with a needle exchange in Hollywood. It's not there anymore, but it was on Cahuenga and Selma. So I pretty much spent like all my time at the needle exchange well, what is that, what, hearing. What
0: is a needle exchange? What does that mean?
1: Oh, it was uh, a needle exchange for heroin addicts and stuff oh. to come bring their dirty needles and we give them clean ones.
0: Uh, you were okay. You're saying needle? I thought you were saying natal, like N A T. No, no. Okay, a needle. exchange.
1: You know, exchange your baby.
0: <laughs> <laughs> That's. What I was like trying to put it all together. I was like the natal exchange. My no. God. Just trade babies. Um, so why, 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 like the needle exchange? Like, what prompted this? Uh, I mean, that seems like kind of out of left field that you would suddenly be interested in getting involved with a needle exchange.
1: Well, I was. So I was always into like Jim Carroll and that kind of stuff, and Richard Hell. When I was in New York, you know, wandering around, and I was thought that life was the real life. Um, You know, the true way to live. Like, street life, whatever. You know, what you fantasize about when you're 16 and 17, I guess.
0: You're like, I'm Uh, going to destroy myself. It'll be awesome.
1: Yeah, this is, like, for the greater good. I need to, like, (laughs) sleep on the street or something. No, not that bad. But I definitely um, romanticize heroin. Uh, But My ex had OD'd, and instead of deciding that I was going to follow in his footsteps and be a junkie, I decided I wanted to, like, understand why people shot up, so I found a needle exchange and started working there and working, like, I was kind of like, I could go to therapy or I could exercise my demons through working with people and, you know, being around it and figuring out how people tick and demystifying it.
0: Okay, so what your ex like? Actually, he OD'd and passed away. Yeah. Ugh, that's terrible. Yeah. So this was while yeah. while, you, while you were in college. Yeah. And you knew that he was using. I mean, it wasn't like something he hid. I guess you probably can't hide it if it's getting that bad.
1: Yeah, I mean, he and I had been together in high school, and he. A run? He ran away a lot, and he would run away to San, San Diego. Uh, and he was like involved with hard Christmas and stuff, and you know, the regular hardcore kid life of the '90s. And he uh, he got in with bad people, and he was troubled, and you know, it was it was un- it was unfortunate, and it was also like. I was 19 and he was like my first love kind of deal. So it was really traumatic and I didn't want to be in LA anyway. So I was just like, I'm going to, you know, I don't need to be in school. I need to be helping people and doing something better with my life.
0: Well, but that, that strikes me as a very, uh, like deeply, uh, I don't know, intelligent way of responding and maybe like unlikely, you know, it doesn't seem like most 19 year olds would be like, you know what? I'm going to go work at a needle exchange and investigate this and work with addicts. And, you know, I feel like a lot of people would have just gone straight to therapy or just like curled up into the fetal position.
1: Yeah. I needed it. I just needed to be around it. I needed to, to deal. I needed. I had like a savior complex it was clear because I I was dealing with a lot of um street kids and a lot of prostitutes and it I through that experience I realized like you can't save anyone from themselves and then it was kind of like the catalyst for me getting over it because I felt like I could have helped him. I mean, everybody who was around him felt like he could, they could help him. And I came to realize, you know, someone's trajectory is their trajectory if they choose it to be that way. And uh, it was an amazing experience, the people that I met. And a few of my clients actually OD'd on while I was working in the last one I was close with. And that was kind of the reason I had to go.
0: Okay. I mean, that's a heavy, you know, that's the thing about it is that it's not like it just ends with one tragedy. You know, unfortunately, when you're hanging around people who are addicted to heroin or, you know, that's a pretty heavy crowd to run with. There's going to be casualties, yeah. you know. Yeah. Um, so eventually you graduated. You got your, what, your bachelor's in uh, screenwriting?
1: Fine art. Fine art yes.
0: the, the, the BFA. I got a BFA in film. Yeah. I got a BFA in film studies. I, you know, I always make a, make sure to point that out. You know, there is a <laughs> You are a fine artist.
1: I am a fine
0: artist. And uh, then, did you immediately go off to graduate school at uh, Columbia?
1: No, no, no. I uh, I was an assistant. I ran a vintage furniture store for like for 5 years and then I worked
0: a natural uh, a natural a natural transition for someone with a BFA in screenwriting. <laughs> yeah.
1: <laughs> well, you know, the best advice I ever got was go get a job where you can write and that doesn't take any of your brain cells.
0: And who gave you that advice?
1: Um Nicole Bonison who I was interning with at the time. Um he still he he produces a killing actually now, but I was I was big on interning with places, and I I would say I was like a workaholic from a young age. The first producer I worked with was a lunatic, and I won't name his name, but oh, he on. was having no, I can't. <laughs> if I he didn't even know who I was. I had worked there for six months, and I walked in his office, and he's like, "Who are you?"
0: Is it somebody like, – let me ask you this. Is it somebody we would know? Is it like somebody with name recognition?
1: Yeah. All
0: right. Yeah. Scott Reuben.
1: Um. No, no. Everybody says him. Like everyone has a bad story about him, but yeah. I don't. I've, I've
0: never heard, met the guy. I heard a, I mean, I've never met the guy either, but I heard a story about him like actually physically throwing an intern out of a moving car. <laughs> <laughs>
1: No, I just had to drive around West Hollywood looking for a specific shade of purple uh vitamin water.
0: Okay. Yeah, yeah. That about for
1: that. hours and hours. <laughs>
0: so Oh god.
1: Yeah. So after that I was working at this furniture store for a while, which was really cool. Um, but then I went to work for The Simpsons actually. Oh you did? Yeah, I was Richard Sakai's assistant.
0: Who's who's assistant?
1: Richard Sakai. He's one of the producers.
0: Oh, okay. So how was that experience, being on, like, the inside of uh, that empire?
1: It was awesome. It was really awesome. It was awesome, but it was also, like, I'm an assistant. I want to be a writer so badly. And I would, like, sneak into the writer's room after everybody would go home and, like, stare
0: just like <laughs> smell the white stand board. there and
1: stare, yeah. Like sniff the the markers <laughs> and the erasers, and like touch the scraps of paper and like you it, know it's ice a, it's cream a, wrappers.
0: But it's such a uh, I've tried. I mean, I, I don't know if I've tried as uh, as well, like or as strategically wisely as one needs to. But to me, getting into writing for a good television show feels like this impenetrable fortress or something that happens by way of like either like insanely good connections or insanely good luck. Like how, and how do you get in? You know, like you came closer than I did just by virtue of actually being on the other side of the wall. But I mean, I've tried out here. It's like, it's really difficult. I guess there's just not a lot of seats at the table.
1: I mean, I don't know. Cause I'm trying to do it now. Um, again. And I think I've been, I think it's like sheer force of will because I've, i i with the first book with Twin Palms, people were interested in turning into a show or a film. I basically had a, a choice. Do you want to do this or do you want to do that? And I thought to myself, like more interesting stuff is going on with TV. Cause I had been trying to get like a few features off the ground. Sam website let me um, adapt Venus drive. And I turned that into a feature and had been trying to get that made for a couple years. And it, just seem like I've been trying for ten years to get features happening. Let me see if this TV thing could happen, and um, I I just finished spending a year writing the pilot and a bible for it, and I feel like I don't know. Maybe it's may, – I think, though, to try to make it in this business, you have to be kind of deluded. And, you know, when I'm feeling low, I listen to Kanye to, like, make <laughs> myself remember that I'm a god, you know, and keep going. And
0: <laughs> Yeah, well, no, it's like I was listening to an interview that Jerry Seinfeld did, and I forget who with, but uh, he was saying that the people who wind up in show business are the people – who want it worse than everyone else. And that makes, yeah. some, that makes some sense to me. And like, I gotta, I gotta get myself to want it more. And I don't know if you can manufacture that. Like I want it, but like, I, it's not my whole life. Like I, I don't like have like that crazy want. And I don't know if I want anything that bad. <laughs> Do you know what I'm saying? Like yeah. I, I, wor- I worry, yeah. about, I worry about my, the level of my intensity. Like I think I'm kind of like, well, yeah, but that's crazy. And these people are nuts. And like, they're, you know i get i get very uh, maybe tangled in ways that i shouldn't or i should just accept it and con myself somehow into being that intense about it but it seems like that's what it would have to take because you have to endure so much bullshit yeah
1: yeah i mean when i was in my early 20s i was going to meetings and stuff cuz when when you graduate usc they're basically like you know you're going to get an agent. You're like one of the promised children. Like, you're going to make it. And you walk out of USC with a script in your hand, and you're like, where is everybody? I thought you wanted me.
0: (laughs) Right, right.
1: And so, you know, I was going on meetings when I was, like, 23 with managers being like, oh, I'm I'm ready. I'm going to sell this. I'm ready to make it. (laughs) And... You were looking at me like you're a lunatic. And one woman who's now, you know, a pretty big deal, she was kind enough to let me into her office where I proceeded to tell her that I was ready to make it. And she was saying, like, most writers don't make it until they're 33 or 34. And I looked at her and I was like, that's much too long. Absolutely not. And now, you know, I'm 34 and I'm mortified about what I said, but uh, to me, it's like last man standing because you get the door shut in your face so much and you go into meetings where people who don't know what they want are telling you what you should be doing and it's okay. so demoralizing no, I've, been, I've been
0: through i've been through so many of those meetings and it's like i just go like i go numb when they start to happen and yeah. then, almost every single one of them is like that and you're just like these people don't know what they're talking about uh it's just it makes me feel like the whole thing is arbitrary and like not that there aren't competent people but it's like the old uh, william goldman line like nobody knows anything that line really does yeah. like sum up Hollywood. Like, nobody knows anything. Yeah, It's just, they'll
1: like, know it when they see
0: it. Maybe. So they'll, they'll, you they'll, just
1: do what you want
0: to do. Yeah. Well, they'll know it when they see the, uh, you know, the bottom line. Then, yeah. S- then suddenly, yeah. then suddenly it's like ingenious, you know, or whatever, but it's a tough business. Yeah. All businesses are tough. I don't want to like get too melodramatic about it, but Hollywood feels like a really, you know, I, I still like, I live here. So, you know, when you live here, you're kind of surrounded by it and you, you wonder at it and, I have a lot of friends who work in the business somehow, and I just, I don't know where I would, I don't know. I haven't found my way in, and I don't know if I want to be in, but, you know, I have a kid now, so it's like, maybe I should be. Yeah. Do you know what I'm saying? It it feels like when you're in LA, it's like, I should be doing something in show business, shouldn't I?
1: Um, Well, I had to leave because it was like consuming me. I was like, how many Saturdays do I have to spend writing at the downtown public library before I sell something? What is wrong with you people? Like, how much time do I have to put into this? And I got so despaired that I uh, stopped writing for two years. And when I was working at The Simpsons, I was like, what's the point? I'm never going to be as good as any of these people. And I'm like depressed on the Fox lot and then feeling like an asshole that I'm depressed on the Fox lot
0: we're, working in the, for the Simpsons. Obviously the Simpsons guys are really funny, but like you, you had access to the writers. Like were you like, holy shit, these people are like beyond crazy talented.
1: Yeah. Cause I was sitting in on, um, table reads and stuff. And I was just like, oh my God, there's 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 no point. You know, it's like if you're editing uh uh Saunders in um The New Yorker and you're a fiction writer, you're just like, What, what why
0: bother? <laughs> right, right. Oh, well so, Well it'll be interesting to see. You're coming you're coming back. This is like uh your triumphant return potentially.
1: Yeah, January first.
0: January 1st. Okay. Well, uh, and it's going to be, and this is, I mean, you have the novel out and uh, like, did that, the process of writing it, you know, after this period of kind of discouragement and desolation on the Fox lot uh, where you weren't writing, you know, was the writing of the novel, you kind of writing your way back into being a writer or was there screenwriting happening in the interim?
1: Uh, I, yeah, I didn't write any scripts until I finished the book or maybe I was finishing the book, but I, it was, it was me writing my way back into writing and it felt awesome because there were no rules and I could do whatever I want, wanted. And I was like, you know what, there doesn't have to be an inciting incident on page 10 and I don't give a shit. (laughs) And it was like... (laughs) It was amazing. It made it like it woke me up and it's like, you know, I took out all these loans that I may never pay back, but at least I wrote a book. You
0: know? It's got my name on it. I did this. <laughs> That's cool. And uh, did you find, like, I mean, in terms of your, like, how you will work going forward, you obviously spent the past year adapting your book and writing the show Bible and stuff, but... Do you think that going forward, I mean, I guess if the show goes and, you know, the cards all fall the way you want them to fall, you'll be working on the show and writing for television. But um, if not, would you go back and write another book or would you write a spec on the screenplay side or?
1: I actually I just finished another book as well. Um, So, yeah, it's actually based in Connecticut. So but I wrote it. With the mindset of I want this to be a show as well, so I was consciously thinking about how it could work as a as a TV show as I was writing the novel, which was interesting because the first book when I was approached, you know, would you write the um, you know a script of this or whatever? I thought you're nuts this is not at all anything that could ever hold anybody's interest. Um,
0: wait for what? But then for, I started, for, for twin palms? Yeah. You didn't think it would work as a TV show.
1: No. Not at all. I couldn't conceive of how it could possibly work.
0: And then but uh, but, but somebody who read it approached you?
1: Yeah, um uh uh, $2 Radio is rep by Gotham Group, and they approached me to see if I wanted to do something with it. And then I started deconstructing it and thinking about how I could make it a TV show and what elements I could take from the book, and then how I could, could expand from the book. And it actually has turned into like a really fun, dark project that's like really. Honey, um, someone described it to me as like a good fellas meets girls meets drive.
0: Okay. I like that. I like that hybrid. And by the way, those, Thank you. those kinds of like hybridized uh, descriptions of like creative projects in the screenwriting world, they get knocked a lot, but they really are useful. Like if you're trying to give yeah. somebody a shorthand understanding of what something is, like especially if, you, if you're if you good at it, you know, and you find the right, you know, meld. Absolutely so I like that goodfellas meets girls meets drive yeah it sounds dead
1: body dumping you know humor
0: there's violent (laughs) yeah it's all good it's all good Uh, well it's been really fun talking with you I like that I'm catching you at this moment of transition and uh, I I certainly uh, congratulate you on the book and I wish you all the best with the move to Los Angeles and uh, hopefully we'll cross paths when you're here thank you it was so much fun all right, folks, that's it. That's Carolina Butslaviak. Go get her novel. It's called How to Get Into the Twin Palms, and it's available now from $2 Radio. You can find her online at karolinabutslaviak.com. Don't ask me how to spell it. Just, you can find it. You can do this. Uh, you can also follow Carolina on Twitter, where her handle is at, Carolina. That's Carolina with a K. And uh, is she on Facebook? I have no idea. I'm guessing yes. Is she on Pinterest? It's possible. Thanks to Kill Rockstars, as always, for the good music. Be sure to check out killrockstars.com. And uh, don't forget about the app, the free, official Other People app. It's available now for your iPhone, iPad, iPod Touch, or Android device. It is the best way to listen and to access the full archives and all premium content. And, hey, guys, uh, premium, when you go premium, that means you're basically a subscriber via the app. It's 2 bucks a month. Do it. You You can listen to all... Uh, 230 some odd episodes Right there on your phone Or your uh, other mobile device You can download episodes to listen to offline You can favorite your favorite episodes And so on and so forth It's wonderful It's a nice experience You should do this Support the show uh, For $2 a month It's a downright bargain Okay Uh, That is it I have to run I'm in a hurry My teeth hurt They really do I do have residual soreness, and uh, I am now frightened to kiss my wife. Imagine the two of us kissing, and imagine tooth decay being transferred like a swarm of angry hornets <laughs> from, her, from her mouth into mine. Please remember that tomatoes were not known in ancient Rome, and that Paul Verlaine died in the Rue de Carte. That is it for now. Thanks again to Karolina Butslaviak. Go get her book. Go check out $2 radio, great independent press, Uh, go buy some dental floss. Do what you need to do. I've had a strange day. Uh, I think that's probably obvious by now. It's one of those days where you just sort of, it's not that I'm, I'm not angry. It's just a weird day. And I'm just sort of like shaking my head and thinking, okay, well, maybe tomorrow. Maybe tomorrow it will be my day. Maybe next year is my year. And by the way, speaking of which, who is the luckiest person on earth? Can we measure this? Is, there, is this an argument that can actually be made? Is there a person out there, their entire life, things just constantly broke their way? Good genes, good timing, good talent, good help, lucky breaks, narrowly escaping a death on multiple occasions. Who is the luckiest son of a bitch who ever lived? Is it me? Uh, Is it you? Is it me? Is that the point of life? Is that what gratitude is? Am I getting at a a deep truth here? Am I supposed to get to the point where I'm like 50 years old and toothless and I look at my toothless wife and feel like the luckiest man who ever lived? Is that really how I'm going to end it? (laughs)